You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we'll be discussing Scanners, released January 14th, 1981. It was written and directed by David Cronenberg and released by Avco Embassy Pictures. It's possible that the concept of Scanners was inspired by a group called Senders from a chapter of William S. Burroughs' Naked Lunch, the senders were a hostile organization of telepaths trying to take over the world. Cronenberg would of course go on to adapt Burroughs' novel to the screen in a film of the same name. I can think of at least two things wrong with that title. And this is also not the sender who is responsible for the diversion of all the mail in America. Correct. That is a different sender. A 1976 draft of Scanners was entitled Telepathy 2000. It started with a protagonist named Harley Quinn telepathically raping a woman on the subway. Harley Quinn? Harley Quinn was the character's name. But what, like, is this, like, Harley Quinn, like, from Batman? No, this is this is pre-Harley Quinn. Yeah, Harley Quinn was invented for the animated series. She didn't exist until, like, 1992, 1993. That's crazy. I, I didn't realize she was original to that show. I assumed that she was a character from the comics just like everybody else. Well, she she was so popular that she she's now like obviously integral to the to the Joker character. Yeah. Uh, but are we assuming that I'm? I mean, I'm only making an assumption here that this Harley Quinn in Cronenberg's script is a male. Um, I think it was. Yes. Oh. Okay. Okay. But that's interesting. Now I feel like I want to go back and research if the name Harley Quinn appears anywhere before well, this. I'm sure it's just. I mean, it's a reference to the same thing that the character. No, of Harley I get Quinn that. Is I get that. But like now, I'm curious if it appears. If this is the the first if, appearance. If of another it. person yeah. came up with it, that's possible. <laughs> Uh, director Cronenberg has described this film as his most frustrating that he ever made. It was a Canadian tax shelter situation, and as a result, he was forced to write and film simultaneously. Patrick McGowan and Jennifer O'Neill apparently did not get along, which added to the difficulty, though they barely had any screen time together. I'm wondering if maybe they had more in the first draft, and then they were written apart. Yeah, because I, I can't really think of any scene where they're together. Yeah, and specifically, he doesn't get to interrogate her. Like, they're in the same room, but at different times. So I, yeah. I can't think of any time they share the screen. In an interview with Film Comment, actor Stephen Lack shared this terrifying recollection of his first day on set. Quote, There we were, the first day of scanners, and they had me get into this 18-wheel truck with four gear shift levers and had me drive into the shot. It was horrifying. I never drove such a thing, and I was pretty disoriented. End quote. He explained, quote, we were set up on a feeder road to the highway, and all the camera crew and staff were there, and some car on the highway slowed down to gawk, and a truck on the highway rammed them from behind. Oh my god. There was a death, and sirens, <gasps> and the whole crew jumped over the storm fence to help out. I was given a slight reprieve of an hour to figure out the gears. So, wait, yes. did, did, did lack cause the accident? Well, just by nature of being there, the production caused the accident. Okay. That's crazy. But he it's not like he did something wrong with the truck. Okay. I, I, th that was my concern. No. But but still, I mean, the production itself, like, caused it because it was a spectacle. Yeah. Uh, but, like, oh, my God. I can't. I like, can't... I, couldn't, I couldn't recover from the mental 
like yeah. trauma of that within I mean, an like, hour, let alone having, figuring out how to drive this truck. <laughs> I'm having anxiety about having, you know, the idea of having to drive that truck to begin with. And then like something traumatic like that happens. Like I'm done for the day, guys. I'm yeah. not doing this. At least in coast to coast, they like sat them down and trained them how to drive these things. Diane Cannon and uh, what's his name? Yeah. What yeah. was the guy's name in that? Eric Roberts. Er- yeah. Yeah. No, it wasn't Eric Roberts. No, 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 no. no. The uh, Blake. Robert Blake. Robert Blake. Different Robert. Yeah. Yeah, Diane Cannon and Robert Blake were given the opportunity to learn how to drive these trucks off screen before they had to do it on set. Scanners has two direct-to-video sequels, Scanners 2 The New Order and Scanners 3 The Takeover, and two direct-to-video spin-offs, Scanner Cop and Scanner Cop 2, a.k.a. Scanners The Showdown, a.k.a. Scanner Cop 2 Vulcan's Revenge. <laughs> I feel like with that many AKAs, it can't be good. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I was gonna say, and but and but this is not related also to Scanner Darkly. Correct. This is a this is a separate franchise, and it doesn't. Although that's a very similar story. In <laughs> yeah, terms I remember of like that one. Investi- is, is it is it telepathy type stuff? I don't no, remember. No, but, but it's it's it, you take it's these weird. drugs and it controls your brain and your perception. Oh, right, and, right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I just I I feel like the only thing I remember about that film was the fact that it was rotoscoped you know yeah. like yeah. It, it, well i think of in the story is because i read it first and i i always think of the scramble suit that the guy wore mm. so because he was working undercover as a police officer and he wore this suit that so that people couldn't recognize him if, even if they knew him is that a matheson um, no philip k dick yeah it's philip k dick i think that because um for a while charlie kaufman was attached to adapt a scanner darkly and i feel like that's what he's making fun of with the three in adaptation where he's like well the cop and the criminal are all one person it turns out Mm -hmm. at the end and he's just like yeah that's that's every cop story in the world but also like how are you going to shoot this practically and it's like a battle between motors and horses like technology versus horse and there's still all one person right well that's a big payoff uh cronenberg did not secure the rights so he had no say over any of these sequels and he obviously hasn't given his blessing to any of them uh, an announced 2007 reboot was scrapped when the creatives involved refused to move forward without Cronenberg's consent, and that was not granted. That's that's actually kind of cool. Yeah, that they would only do it if Cronenberg said it would be okay. I feel like yeah. that that's a position that a person takes when they when they already have an, a decent amount of money, and they're like, <laughs> "All right, you know what? I'm I'm willing to respect the artist now. I'm living comfortably." Yeah, yeah, but you, yeah, you're a producer. And you're you're comfortable on with your career on your own, and you're not beholden to the studio because the yeah. studio, I'm sure, it was pissed. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, someone still owns the rights to it. Yeah, it, it reminds me a bit of the story of uh, 2010. The the uh, Peter Hyams went to he wouldn't do it without Kubrick's consent, right? Correct. Yeah, and Kubrick was basically a, at that point was just like I don't care. <laughs> yeah, he's like I I don't think he's ever really cared about people doing sequels to his stuff. Like that wasn't does he that have wasn't a concern sequels? for him dr sleep oh it's not like he could give consent to that no but um i th- i honestly think he would though i think he w- he would have approved of that i don't i don't think it was like a desecrated what he had yeah I don't, in any way um but in my opinion this is overdue for a reboot or a sequelization in some form especially while michael ironside is still around like yeah. it'd be great to have him play a cameron-esque character in something i never saw 2010 was it good I liked it a lot. It's a 1984, right? Oh, okay. Come yeah, 83 yeah, or 84. So yeah. <laughs> we, we still have it ahead of us. If we can survive a few more years yeah, of this. Yeah, if we can finish <laughs> January of 1981, we'll get there. It, it's it's much more of a narrative film. It's not as heady. Yeah. 
Yeah. But it's it's like the production value is great. The cast is great. I like the writing a lot. Yeah. We open this film with dramatic music and Shining-esque teal opening credits. A vagrant we will come to know as Cameron Vale wanders through the emergency exit at a food court. He steals a cigarette from a table as he passes it and then collects food off of a couple more tables on the way to just abandoned leftovers and makes a meal for himself. He notices two women watching him and commenting on his offensive homelessness. The more brazenly rude of the two women suddenly pauses mid-insult and starts shuddering like she's having a stroke. A high-pitched whine accompanies the attack as Cameron stares her down and she collapses to the ground. Two men in trench coats at the counter behind her take note of the situation and approach Cameron. If you if you were a dude that has trouble controlling like his his reading Powers. other people's yeah. minds or whatever whatever it is that he's doing here wouldn't you avoid crowded public places like at you know be a hermit not a vagrant in a crowded city mall you know <laughs> i i would think the only reason he would go here was the survival instinct of there's food here there's free food yes I, I just feel like i i mean i don't know how long he's been like this if this is like since birth if he's been wandering in the street like i don't really understand the timeline of this story for yeah. him before prior to this moment but i i would stay away from the mall yeah <laughs> there's a story element that'll come up later in that uh someone will tell him that he's been on ice and just recently right. let go and because they needed him and i yeah. don't know what that means yeah uh, there's there's too many metaphors in that whole scene yeah uh, but it's possible that he's only been out and about for a matter of weeks. Yeah, like he's brand new to being a human, even. Yeah, that's unclear. That's interest. That's an interesting idea, though, because I, I guess I didn't think about it like literally being on ice when I yeah. when I watched it. I was just like, oh, okay, they're just that was like a back pocket thing. Yeah, but it's like totally bizarre sci-fi, so it's all possibility. The two men in trench coats at the counter behind her take note of the situation and approach Cameron. The trench coat men follow Cameron up the escalator and hit him with a tranquilizer dart in the hand, which seems to be where they're injecting people with this stuff. Uh, Cameron finds himself surrounded by trench coat men as he jumps from one escalator to a parallel escalator and barely hangs off the railing in his half-tranquilized state. Once he gets into the escalator, he curls up in the fetal position, and he's asleep by the time he gets to the top, where the trench coat men drag him away. So the entire time that he is, like, going up this escalator, like, I'm having anxiety attacks about, like, being sucked into the end of the escalator. Yeah, because it's like, a fully falls, functioning escalator falls that they down. I'm like, don't, don't fall down. You're gonna, you you got to jump at the end. You're going to get sucked in there and, like, yeah. crushed into little bits. But they let the actor lay down. And, and he's wearing, like, a strappy coat. Like, there's stuff that could have gotten sucked into this thing. Oh, for sure. That kid is back on the escalator again. He awakens strapped to a bed. A bearded man approaches him from the darkness of the warehouse. He knows Cameron Vale's name. And he knows what Cameron is, even though Cameron seems never to have heard the word scanner before. The bearded man, who we'll come to learn is a scientist named Dr. Ruth, invites a crowd of people into the warehouse to look at Cameron strapped to this bed. And I want to know what this is about. I, I get that he's trying to put him through some kind of uh, mental test. But what were these people told? Like, Yeah. Uh, what was the prompt? Yeah, like what? Like, did he put out a flyer? Are these Comsec employees? He just gathered a room full of people that and there's stays totally silent. But think anything you want. 
But I also get the impression that this warehouse is being kept secret from the rest of Consec, so I don't think these are Consec employees. I think these must just be people off the street. Yeah, what a what a weird thing. Just walk into this room and just sit there and think real loud. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's just, I, I mean, was he walking around like he had a movie screener at the mall and he was just stopping people like, <laughs> hey, want to see a guy thrash? <laughs> <laughs> That's my fetish. <laughs> Perfect. This whole section started me thinking. You don't work in the industry, do you? <laughs> the, the, the industry thrash. of thrashing? The, the thrashing person industry. <laughs> this whole section made me think about the whole thing that's like been viral lately about how certain people don't have internal monologues. Yeah. You know, like like they don't think in words and sentences. And I'm just like, does does that just not register to him or does he yeah. do you suddenly see images like what's what is that that's like? true yeah and i can't tell if, what the point of this is from dr ruth's perspective either like is he just trying to show him how useful ephemeral is by uh, showing him the contrast of a bunch of people thinking and then i give you this drug and then you don't hear it anymore i i suppose it was also possible that he was just trying to see how much he can take like yeah uh, because again, we'll come to realize that there are other scanners that have a, a varying intensity. Um, That's true. And so it might be that he's just trying to see, like, you know, all of these people should be like totally driving him insane. Or the flip side of that, the more people would allow him to kind of put up a stronger defense, so he could be around larger crowds. Yeah. Without drugs. Well, that's what's weird about the scene is because it almost feels like he's going through a detox because it's such a long like montage. Like we keep f- crossfading forward in time and it feels like it's supposed to be like he's getting something out of his system. But right now he doesn't have anything in his system yet. I mean, I guess he has the injection that he got at the mall if that was ephemeral. But I think that was just a sedative. Right, because th- uh, there seems to be some conflict in what ephemeral does sometimes. Sometimes yeah. it's supposed to knock you out, and sometimes it's not. It should just make your head clear. It should it should make it so yeah. that your powers right. subside, but then it doesn't make you unconscious. Maybe they have two different versions. Yeah. You know, it's like Tylenol and Tylenol PM. <laughs> yeah, <there you laughs> ephemeral <go>. PM. Ephemeral <laughs> PM. <laughs> That's good. Uh, but it reminds me of like how the rules of kryptonite change sometimes. Or I guess there's different colors of kryptonite that do different things too. Correct. But... Uh, yeah, he's, he's freaking out in this bed and nobody's mouths are moving, but he's hearing all these voices. And we cut to later that night when Dr. Ruth returns and he gives him an injection of ephemeral. Presumably this is the, the day ephemeral. <laughs> and uh, the voices are muted and he says, can talk now. We cut to the Consec building across town where a scanner on stage announces his intentions to scan everyone in the audience despite a myriad of unpleasant side effects. I must remind you that the uh, scanning experience is usually a painful one, sometimes resulting in nosebleeds, earaches, stomach cramps, nausea, sometimes other symptoms of a similar nature. (laughs) If an erection lasts longer than six (laughs) hours, consult your doctor. Yes. Uh, He assures everyone that the process is safe and that they have a doctor on hand before calling for volunteers. And surprisingly, only one man raises his hand, even though presumably everyone here signed up for the nosebleeds or whatever. Like, they know (laughs) this guy's a scanner and that was the plan. Well, I don't know. I mean, like, I would assume that they signed some sort of form to come in here, but who knows if they read the fine print. They're like, wait, what is this? If that wasn't on the (laughs) billboard or whatever, if that wasn't on, on uh, on the flyer on the office wall then there's no way that a 
dozen people wouldn't get up and walk out of the room as soon as he starts talking about you know nausea and headaches and upset stomach diarrhea <laughs> pepto-bismol the lone volunteer takes the stage beside the scanner and the exercise begins he asks the volunteer to think of a secret that he wouldn't mind this group knowing about intending to read it from his mind a pulsating whine grows as the two men twist and contort their faces on stage the scanner is grinding his teeth tightly and seems very panicked until his entire head explodes showering the entire stage with blood and brains <laughs> This was insane. I was not expecting this. This is my first time watching this movie. Yeah. This was shocking. <laughs> it's for sure the best head explosion in any movie. And it's it's so good. Like so often when you have things like this, that if you go in slow motion, you can see where they replace like the dummy. You right. Know? Like he's like, oh, that's the dummy head that they blew up. But this yeah. one, the the head the guy's fake head looks so believable and real. And even the eyes are bulging out as, yeah. as the explosions happening. It's like it's, there are actual pieces. Uh, the effect for the exploding head was accomplished by filling a latex sculpt of the actor's head with dog food, leftover lunch, fake blood and rabbit livers. And then the visual effects supervisor, Gary Zeller literally shot it from behind with a 12 gauge shotgun. Huh? So it's what? like an actual suicide was committed on stage. That's crazy. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't remember exactly, but it must not have been a two shot because, like, th- I would not be anywhere near that thing when they're shooting yeah. a shotgun. I think at Ironside it. even said on set that he had problems with being so close to it. Although, I, isn't it against any kind of regulation to bring an actual loaded shotgun on set? One would think, but it's 1981, so. Although I guess they don't say what they were firing from the shotgun it could have been like one of those like bean bags or salt shotguns sure well also it brings new meaning to the word two shot when you have a double barrel (laughs) shotgun (laughs) right (laughs) but uh it it looks phenomenal um the the, the, i was trying to think of other even like head explosions from movies that i really like and the closest i think we get is in big trouble in little china but we kind of cut away before the guy explodes yeah but i like Uh, when his head is like fully inflated before he erupts yeah i feel like there might be some head exploding in ricky o oh that sounds right (laughs) there's a lot of heads that explode on the show the boys but it's all cg it's all done with cg yeah man i would really love for the boys to do something like this like full practical latex head exploding see this is another okay because i was thinking about how the boys kind of relates to this story points later which we'll bring up but yeah. now this is another point that they do head explosions so i, I really think that the boys was influenced by it yeah movie. that makes sense a man near the stage apprehends the volunteer before he can leave the building and calls for backup i want you to come with me i didn't do anything I said I want you to come with me. A group of security guards walk the volunteer through a stairwell, and the doctor is instructed to inject him with ephemeral, because they've determined this guy's probably a scanner uh, if he was able to do that. As the doctor approaches the volunteer's hand with the needle, he is coerced by some unseen force to inject the chemical into his own hand, but the volunteer fakes a collapse to sell the injection which means this must be ephemeral PM. <laughs> yeah, Or exactly. he assumed it was that. Um, right. And he thought if he collapsed, it would look more like he was losing his powers. I, but, like, you know, when they... I, I feel like it's weird that they're always trying to inject in the hand. Like, it it seems like a weird place to inject this stuff. Like, yeah. 
Is there a main artery I don't know about in the in the pad of are, your thumb? I think there are big veins there, though. Are there? I don't know, but like it just seems like a weird thing to do because they when they shoot the trank, it hits in the hand. Well, don't they usually when they set you up with an IV? Don't they usually do it in that area? Well, they do it in the the back of your hand, not in the the. That's the, true. Not the in fatty, the webbing. The, yeah. the fatty part of your thumb. Um, Maybe there's some scanner. <laughs> node that's right there a scanner node <laughs> a lymph node that's in their hand also why did they have it like yeah on what, hand yeah like ready to subdue a scanner who the only scanner who was there to their knowledge was the one who was giving the presentation they well, what if have... he went rogue though Whoa. they were like we need to we need to Just start take him down he was on a pretty the stage. nerdy looking guy i don't think he likes to party too much yeah i don't know I also don't think that they could have done much to stop him from blowing up Michael Ironside's head based on the faces both of them were making. <laughs> if, if they were gonna try and inject him before he killed anybody, they waited a long time. Later, we see a two-car caravan of Consec agents transporting the volunteer when Ironside takes over the driver of the second car back. The second car races around the first one on the left, and the passenger in the second car levels a gun at the driver demanding he drive normally. <laughs> You gotta pull back behind him, man. Come on! Ray, I'm gonna kill you if you don't do it. It's like, that's not gonna save you if you shoot this guy in the head while you're driving full speed right? down the road. <laughs> There's some kind of history that we don't know here where this guy was just waiting for any excuse to kill this guy. Yeah, and or Ray does this all the time and it's driving him insane. But Ray just swerves off the side of the road into a wall and the whole car explodes into a ball of fire. The front car pulls over to help, but it's clearly no use. While two of the agents argue by the flaming car, the one left in the back seat with the volunteer pulls a gun on him, and the volunteer smiles. Here's where the scar in the middle of the volunteer's forehead is at its most pronounced. It looks like an eight-pointed star pressed into a skin-tone wax seal right in the middle of his forehead. Yeah, I thought this was like a remnant of a bullet hole or something like i was super confused like how, someone had shot him yeah i'm like how does somebody get shot in the head like right like point blank between the eyes and survive it like, well it's better if it's if it's in the middle than it is, is it? if it's to one side or the other well, i guess been, you between the lobes there's plenty of cases of bullets getting lodged between the hemispheres right. and being removed safely so what you're saying is don't aim straight for the middle don't aim in the middle yeah okay got it well, or do if you're trying to not kill the person but then also don't shoot at them. Wait, do you want me to die or do you not want me to die? I'm confused, Are you confused, shooting at sweetie. yourself? <laughs> I thought that's what we were talking about. <laughs> Who knows? The argument between the other agents is solved when the backseat agent shoots both of them and then himself under the puppeteering forces of the volunteer. We cut back to Consec, where executives are recapping the previous night's events. This was evidently the first attempted presentation of scanners to the public. It went poorly. Yeah, I was a little <laughs> confused by that. <laughs> what, that this was their first presentation? Well, because, okay, I guess this is getting a little ahead, but I was like, Doc, Dr. Ruth yes. works for Consec and right. is in charge of scanner-related things. And this is Consec sending out the message to the world that we have scanners like this is their press conference or whatever it does seem like, premature for this kind of a presentation well maybe premature but also this is the spoiler alert dr ruth knows the guy that did the head exploding right yeah. like he knows who that guy is like why why is he not involved in this and why does he not know that he is in that room well i 
to me, again, if we're getting in ahead of the story here, yeah. that uh, the volunteer will be revealed to be actively seeking out these scanners and to eliminate them. And it, it's possible that uh, this was one of the last scanners that they had protected, and that's why this event was so private. Um, but we also know that we'll find, come to find out that there's a mole in this investigation, in, in this organization. At contact, so yeah. It, yeah. It's possibly that this was all set up in order to allow this volunteer to get close to this sure. person. Sure. I, t- I totally get that. But that, yeah, that just... I guess if I were Dr. Ruth, I'd be a little miffed that they're putting on a press conference about scanners without me. Yeah. So, you know. Well, well it certainly shows in his demeanor in this conference room where he's yeah. just slumped over in his <laughs> chair. <laughs> totally defeated. <laughs> yeah, he, he does not care what these people have to say. The board is considering putting an end to the scanner research program headed by Dr. Ruth, and a new security head is announced, Mr. Braden Keller, Keller moves to convince the board that scanners are not viable tools of war. Let us leave the development of dolphins and freaks as weapons of espionage to others. I'm assuming the dolphin comment is a reference to scientist John Lilly, whose dolphin experiments we mentioned in our Altered States review as having inspired Mike Nichols' Day of the Dolphin. Dr. Ruth's response to this is to point out that the audience of the presentation was not very well vetted because they somehow let in an assassin, likely a scanner himself. I need to see Day of the Dolphin. Is there exploding heads in there? Because that would be amazing. No, it's just dolphins putting bombs on ships. Oh, yeah. okay. I think they're attaching limpet mines to ships. I mean, that's still pretty awesome, but like dolphins, like, you know, using telepathy on people and that would be cool. exploding brains would be really cool. I'm sure Russia has tried that at least. <laughs> they use cats. Do you remember that whole story? Use cat the Russians using cats as listening devices. CIA did that too. Did they really? Yeah, yeah. I, I remember that reading something about them implanting listening devices in cats so that they could get them into places that they couldn't otherwise get them into. The CIA program failed immediately because the first cat that they that they bugged to record a meeting got yeah. hit by a car inside of fifteen minutes. And they were just like, <laughs> we're not going to do this anymore. Cats are dumb. This took so long to train this cat, and then it got hit by a car immediately. Well, you don't train cats. These yeah. dogs. That was your first mistake. <laughs> they they use cats for a lot of weird stuff, the CIA. I remember they, I read something, and I don't know if this is verified or anything, but that they would light cats on fire and let them go in fields in Cuba to sabotage like crops and stuff. Because the cats would just run around and spread the fire for miles. Jesus. Yeah. Like, I wonder how many different types of animals they had to light on fire to figure out which ones would run. Spread the farthest. Frantically yeah. around while on fire. The cow just stood there. <laughs> I'm ready. All right, cows are out. <laughs> this is my time. <laughs> when you gotta go. When Keller admits that the man seemed to use scanning techniques, then he makes Ruth's case for him. A scanner can bypass rigorous vetting and carry out six executions without even being captured. Well, that gentleman is uh, my response. The weapons capability of these uh, um, telepathic uh, curiosities. I would say one solid execution and five, like, killed while attempting to escape. Yeah. I don't know if I would call those executions. Yeah, because he clearly didn't have them in mind. Like, his plan was to kill the one guy and walk out. I mean, I feel like they were executions in so much. I mean, it wasn't a premeditated, but it was a one-sided attack. In, In that way, it was an execution. Yeah. They had no chance against him. Especially the last guy. 
that was literally just being forced to shoot himself in the head. Keller points out that the last scanner in the program exploded on stage yesterday, so shutting down the program is redundant anyway. Dr. Ruth shares his suspicion that the program has been losing scanners to another larger underground organization controlled by the volunteer from last night, who he has identified as Daryl Revick. He recommends they retaliate by infiltrating Revick's group and then reveals an ace up his sleeve, another scanner that he only recently connected with. Now, this scene was supposed to lead directly to where the film starts. The head explosion was supposed to be the very first scene of the movie. That would have been so great. I think that would have been better, but they moved it further into the film because they were worried people coming to the theater late would miss the head explosion, and then it's a little bit slow for a while after that. Yeah, yeah. And so they moved it around. But I think it works better if you start with the explosion, and then he hadn't even captured Cameron yet for his program. And that was something that was kind of an afterthought where he's like, oh, well, now I have to go to my last resort opportunity. I mean, I think if this movie was made today, they would have changed that order. Yeah. And it's a shame because I feel like... You know, you should you shouldn't have to change those story elements that make a better story yeah. in order to accommodate, you know, people being dumb, like coming you know, to a movie late. <laughs> I was just thinking about this. Um, there is sort of an, an unofficial remake of this movie called What Women Want. <laughs> um, I don't remember the massive head explosions is, in that movie. Is he a scanner in that movie? <laughs> is that how you become a scanner? You take a bath with a... With a hairdryer. Is a, that what happened? Yeah. I don't remember that. He movie. literally just electrocutes himself in a bathtub with a bunch of women's products, and then he can hear what women think. Okay. All right. Yeah. I, I really want, like, a recut of what women want, but then there's, like, a scene where Mel Gibson has, like, a staring contest with Michael Ironside on, like, a street corner. I feel like if, if I do this to myself, will I understand my own, like, desires and wants and motivations? I think so. That sounds Here's nice. a bunch of electronics. <laughs> She's just what? No, 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 killing myself no. in this episode. As a matter of fact, I do have one still unaffiliated, very special one. We cut back to the warehouse where Ruth is keeping Cameron. Doctor Ruth teaches Cameron what scanners are—a sort of jumble of telepathy, telekinesis, and pyrokinesis—but he claims that they haven't found a cause yet. Cameron seems clear-headed now like he's fully detoxed from where he started the film. Ruth asks what happened with the woman at the mall, and Cameron claims that her comments forced him to think about her. He never meant to hurt her, but as soon as she started thinking about him, he looked at her, and then whatever happened happened automatically. We cut to a control room where Keller is seeing this interrogation live on a dozen monitors. Ruth asks what bothered Cameron about the people he brought into the warehouse. They talked too loud. They talked and they talked. Really? I didn't see their lips move, did you? No, it was the other voices, the ones without lips. Now, Ruth teaches Cameron about the drug ephemeral, the drug that he injected Cameron with to stop the voices. It is a scanner suppressant. And we cut to a film reel of an old interrogation of Daryl Revick. Sure enough, it's the volunteer from the night of the head explosion, and he's wearing a bandage right between his eyes because he says he drilled a hole in his head to let the voices out. This is an actual procedure called self-trepanation, and it's sometimes used to relieve intracranial pressure. Egon Spengler even tried it once. Egon, this reminds me of the time you tried to drill a hole through your head. Remember that? That would have worked if you hadn't stopped me. Revik tells the interrogator that he covered the hole on his forehead with an eye to keep the voices from getting back in. And when she asks a little condescendingly, do you think that's going to trick them? (laughs) He flips out on her. 
Do you think that will fool them? And I don't think the actress was prepared for Ironside's reaction, but uh, he, when he thinks that she's patronizing him, he like picks up a glass and throws it through a one-way mirror on the other side of the room. I mean, to be fair, also, like, you drilled a hole in your head and then put some, like, fabric or, you know, gauze over top of it. I feel like it's now easier for things to get into your brain. That's true. <laughs> it's definitely more porous. Ruth tells Cameron that he and Revik are essentially the same, but that Revik is on a rampage killing scanners that won't join him, and it's up to Cameron to put a stop to it. We cut to a subway platform where Keller is meeting with a man obscured by a panel in the foreground. I, I, I hated this aspect of this. Yeah. It, 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 because the only reason to obscure someone this way is to have someone who we know we know who it is. Right. And we have to they have to hide it so we're surprised when we find out who it is. But to go about it this way, it, it, it's it, there's only so many people it could be. Yeah, it's obviously not Cameron. It doesn't make sense if it's Dr. Ruth. So it has to be the only other person that we've dealt with that he would meet with yeah. in secret. Yeah, I, I, I would have preferred like this had just been a phone call, like a one-sided phone call. Sure. Where he's just giving information to somebody. And because the way he could have phrased it, it, it could have sounds just like, oh, he's informing someone within the agency. Yeah. Uh, and then the big reveal will be later. Oh, he was giving this information to so-and-so. Right. Uh, but uh, it, this way, like, it makes you think too much. And, 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 and like, you're trying to figure it out. And the only it, logical It's not really a mystery. Yeah. Yeah. Because the part that would surprise you is that Keller is the mole, not that this other guy is the person who's receiving information from the mole. Yeah. It would have been even more interesting to do it the other way. Like, to, to show... To show Revic and have Keller hidden? Yeah, show Revic. Yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> and, and, yeah, show Revic and then have, have Revic be getting this information. Like, that's... Yeah. That's more interesting because then you go, oh, I don't know who. To yeah, trust it could now. have been anyone on the board that was giving this information to him. It, it's like Principal Skinner with a certain agitator for privacy's sake. Let's call her Lisa S. No, that's too obvious. Uh, let's say L. Simpson. But anyway, Keller fills in this mysterious stranger on the results of the board meeting, and he tells the man about Cameron Vale, Ruth's secret weapon, back at the warehouse. Cameron is introduced to his psychic sparring partner, yoga master Dieter Tots, whose name sounds so much like Tater Tots <laughs> that I'm calling this intentional. <laughs> uh, they call me Tater Salad. <laughs> apparently, Tots can control his heart rate with his brain. <laughs> All right, it's, it's hard not to hear it. Come on, give me some of your Tots. No, I'm freaking starved. I didn't get to eat anything today. He can control his heart rate with his brain and he has invited Cameron to try and manipulate it remotely. I want you to make a link from your brain to his heart. I want your brain to make his heart beat fast. Tots is supposedly able to lower his own heart rate if it gets too high, but as should have been expected, Cameron has no trouble and Dr. Ruth, for some reason, doesn't even have the ephemeral in his hands ready to inject this whole time. 
He tells Cameron to end the scan when it's clear that Tots is suffering a heart attack, but Cameron waits until the last possible second to release him, just as Ruth is reaching out with the needle. Yeah, and, and going for the hand again. Yeah. You were right, Dr. Ruth. It was easy. Dr. Ruth sets Cameron on the course to locate Revic. The first breadcrumb on the path is an artist named Benjamin Pierce. He spent time in a prison for the criminally insane. Ruth doesn't seem to know for certain whether Revic has gotten to Pierce yet, but he's their last hope for a trail to him. Pierce was given his freedom after killing his entire family via an art rehabilitation program. Well, he, he he attempted to kill his entire family. Oh, he didn't actually kill them. Well, and he, he didn't actually kill them. He also didn't kill them through an art rehabilitation program. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know that. <laughs> he, after attempted murder, he was rehabilitated in theory and released. But they were like, so, you so, tried to kill your kids, but this is a this is a great fucking tree. <laughs> this macaroni art is deadly. <laughs> yeah. Get out of here. It's like a house of wax situation. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, We cut to the gallery of Pierce's work. Cameron encounters the gallery owner and has some questions about the artist before he's willing to purchase anything. The gallery owner is unwilling to share any information regarding the artist. I I liked his line, though, when he was like, I'm interested in this uh, for my apartment in Paris. Yeah, he's trying to sound fancy. Yeah, like he totally sold me. I'm like, if you have an apartment in Paris, of course you want to buy this art. I like how you tried to give him a fancy voice, even though he (laughs) says everything in the same monotone. He's just like, I was thinking about buying some art to put in my fancy apartment in Paris. (laughs) Where I'm from, we. (laughs) We. We, Where we are from, the royal we. 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 (laughs) Then maybe you could just think about where he lives the man is suddenly flushed and his nose trickles with blood a woman in the gallery a friend of the owner rushes to his side and seems to notice cameron in the crowd and suspect him of having caused this we're now 37 minutes and 30 seconds into the film and just meeting the actress who gets top billing somehow yeah which i mean like is she especially famous because like i didn't know her but i thought it was interesting that she got top billing she was a supermodel um she's i think she's brazilian or argentinian maybe oh. brazilian and she, she sound it no but um she was like a cover girl uh okay. model for a long time um, so she probably is at the time the most known person in or this at movie. least the highest paid person yeah. <laughs> i don't know if she's the okay. most known but yeah there's there was definitely some reason that she got billing over patrick McGowan. if she's like some like playboy model or something or or cover girl or whatever it is yeah I mean, I feel like they would put her in this movie because of her hotness. And they mostly cover her up in, like, winter coats the whole time. That's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but she had been in other, like, psychic sci-fi movies, too, before Okay, this. so she yeah. has a type. She had experience. <laughs> mm-hmm. She stares intently at Cameron from across the room until his nose begins to bleed. And then Cameron heads to Pierce's cabin in the woods. Is this the origin of the psychic brainwaves cause nosebleeds uh like i don't know a lot of psychic movies before this like psychic warfare movies yeah because it seems to be like like everything like even firestarter which came out like a couple years after this yeah the father's a psychic and yeah like they're he's always getting nosebleeds stranger things yeah they're always getting nosebleeds it's like too much brain activity causes nosebleeds i don't know when that became a movie trope I think it was around the same time that everyone started doing coke. And they were like, man, whenever my brain works really hard, my nose starts gushing blood. I 
feel like that had to feed into it <laughs> in some way. Perfect. <laughs> also, I like I like how he how Vale says just think about where he lives. Yeah. And I really wanted him just to get like a solid postal address and it'd be like, crap, I don't know where this is. <laughs> it's just an address. I gotta now I have to go find a map and like, figure Thomas out where it guide, is. Where is that? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> B eleven. There's only B ten. I don't think people know what a Thomas guide is anymore. If you uh were confused about which Thomas you were looking for <laughs> No. I think we told my PA about it. He's like, what? What are you talking about? (laughs) It's just a map. A map of the entire state. Yeah. Well, you know, paper maps are confusing. (laughs) Cameron heads to Pierce's cabin in the woods. He tells Pierce that he needs help, and he thinks that Pierce can provide that help, and Pierce just laughs in his face. (laughs) And I think you're in big trouble, chum. Pierce takes him a little more seriously when Cameron uses Revick's name, and Cameron notices a team of people sneaking up on the cabin with shotguns, but he doesn't say shit about it. He just says, like, hey, why don't we come over here in this giant head that you have and talk? And uh, so they sit on a couch in this huge head sculpture, and Cameron reveals himself as a scanner and asks Pierce how he deals with the voices, unmedicated, and Pierce credits his art. My art keeps me sane. I, I was wondering if the head was some kind of like cone of silence, like because because he because he, he obviously had like sitting area in there. Yeah, it was like it was like oh is this like like Professor X's like uh, like cerebro? You know, well, well, like re- his reverse cerebro and Logan. Oh, like okay, where they're hiding that he's yeah. in. Like what are those yeah. things called? Like it's a Faraday cage or whatever. Like it yeah. prevents yeah, yeah, things yeah, totally. from getting in there. I almost thought that it was it was actually like. A, a filmic metaphor for that they were talking to each other in their heads oh oh god that makes more you sense. know what <laughs> that that went that went right over my head I, i'm not saying Pat. that that's definitively what's going on no, no, here no, but, but i, I like thought it was it. easier like than recording adr and they were like why don't you just go into a giant head and then people will understand you're psychically you seriously talking to each think other. that constructing a giant fake head with a seating area in it is easier than recording adr cronenberg probably had that thing <laughs> He's like, I got a big head in my garage. Does that help? You're the director. (laughs) You answer. Still, Cameron has not mentioned the approaching hit squad, but presumably they both know it's coming because they have scanner brains and they can sense when people are around. Maybe not. Maybe they can only sense other scanners. Maybe they're inside that, you know, Faraday head cage and they don't know they're coming. But I've covered this. Cameron does know they're coming because he saw them. (laughs) Okay, yeah. When Cameron asks where Revik is hiding, Pierce steps out of the head and is immediately getting blasted with everybody's shotguns. Shotguns are like this movie's weapon of choice, too. Yeah, for sure. It's like uh, Shoddy's only uh, video game mode. It's like I don't uh, know what you're talking about. It's like w- when you would play uh, Goldeneye, Goldeneye, you could pick like a weapon that was the only weapon on the whole level. Oh, really? Yeah. I forget if there was a shotgun in Goldeneye. I feel like there was. Uh, th- there was a couple, yeah. From inside the head, Cameron works mentally to locate all of the assassins and attack them using his powers. We just see him swinging his head around left and right like whip pans as he's crushing people with the stuff in the warehouse. And uh, when everyone's dead, he moves outside to hear Pierce's last words. Oh, my God. 
but the subtitles here clearly read kill Oberst, <laughs> which is for sure not what this dude is saying. Yeah, I was really I, confused by this. I, I have this. I, I, I'm, I'm reading the script for this movie instead of uh, instead of my usual notes. Yeah, I, I, I know this movie really well. And I was looking through the script here and I was like, it says kill Oberst. What? Yeah, and this isn't an official. This is not an official. Right, script. right, right. Um, but but some clearly somebody misunderstood uh, so the, this. So this transcript script that you're reading also said kill Obrist? It might yeah, be the same thing Obrist. as what we were using. Well, we were. For I mean, subtitles. yeah, we were using open titles right. for our subtitles, but that's just okay. funny. They might have just copied and pasted from some probably. script they found online. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, it, it's interesting because the when they say the word program, it ends with a, a M M M E. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's a British they're, person they're transcribing giving himself this. away. We have one hint. We need to find this person. <laughs> Just think about their address, Richard. <laughs> Cameron checks into a hotel where he receives a package at the front desk containing some ephemeral to inject himself with in his room. PM or daytime? I don't know. <laughs> he, he doesn't receive it. Like He goes up to the front desk and he says, is there any packages for me? And they're all, what's your name? He's like, Cameron Vale. And then he's holding the package. He says, what's your room number? It's like, it has his name on it. Yeah. Just, just he give gave me the you package. the name. Give me the thing. Are there a lot of Cameron Vales here today? Give me the thing. Cameron heads directly to Kim Obrist's apartment and is scanned at the door by a friend of hers. He gathers that Ben Pierce has been killed and he leads Cameron upstairs. There's like 10 scanners just chilling in this apartment. When he finds Kim, it's the same woman who scanned him at the gallery. And he's asking for her help in locating Revic. We cut outside the building where Revik stands on a fire escape watching Oberst's apartment from across the street. We crossfade from the face of Revik to the face of two other men who he is presumably controlling. Well, I, and, and this this confused me. I get that he's controlling them now. What I thought was he was mentally manipulating other people to, to make it think that that's what he looks like. Oh, Cause, well, cause yeah, the, but, he's, the... but there's two people here. Right, that, that's what was so confusing about the first crossfade. I was like, "Oh, this is this is the fake identity he's pretending to look at." And then, and then it turns he to a third again. guy. Like, <laughs> I was like, "Oh, okay. I don't know what's happening yeah. now." So I'm confused at this point. Like, who are these people, and what are they doing here? <laughs> yeah, because they they make the point a few times that like, oh, Revik has an army or this underground right. of things, but we never see any other scanners that he's like successfully lured to. Well, his and side. I'm not totally clear on if if he has scanner people or not like like those people that showed up and started shotgunning you know the dudes when they were in the yeah, he- giant head like were those scanners i don't I think don't they were know. i i think he has he has a thing for people that are holding shotguns <laughs> and he decides he's going to take over them i mean i get that he could control people or whatever and and maybe he's got all these army guys as his henchmen but like but these okay revix people aside all of these dudes in Kim's apartment, what are they doing here? And like, I, is this like it's a, a scanner orgy? A scan, it's a scanner orgy? Yeah. They're just uh, touching brains, you know? It's a mind fuck? Yeah. But like, are they like a militia that's trying to stop Revic and they're just a bunch of scanners trying to do good? Or are they just like, you know, Netflixing and chill? Like, I don't they, know what's happening here. They're not. <laughs> On his path, it doesn't seem like. I mean, that's what Cameron's here to convince them to do is to go after Revic. They weren't already doing that. It seems like they're a resistance, but sort of a... Resisting what? Uh, it seems like they're resisting <laughs> being converted to Revic's army. 
which we okay. haven't seen any hint of. But they're just, yeah. I I, what I thought they were doing was I thought they were just kind of like, like they have to put up so many defensive walls against other people all the time that this was kind of their moment to unwind. Like, like they can just let their minds wander with each other because yeah. they're all sharing the same kind of feeling. Yeah. But whatever, where, wherever they're going or whatever, whatever visions, cause we, cause we never see their perspective of what's happening. Right. We just hear their voices, but they don't notice anything else going on in this room. That's true. They're, they're, they're so they're involved in their present. drum circle that they don't, they don't see anything coming. <laughs> But they're, yeah, inside the apartment, all the scanners are sitting in a circle now, and they're just chanting as they mind meld with each other, and they're describing, like, what it's like to combine brains with other people. Um, well, not all the scanners. There's still the lookout at the top of the stairwell, but when he encounters Revic's shotgun puppets, he is unceremoniously dumped down the stairs. I assumed he was going to send the rest of the group, like, a brain DM, like, hey, shotguns inbound. But they're so distracted by connecting with each other that they don't even notice these guys until they're already in the apartment and have shot three people in this circle. Like, everyone in the, is still smiling after the second shot is fired. Like, I feel like normal, non-scannery people have better senses than these guys. <laughs> That's true. Maybe they were just distracted. Well, it's not like, you know how when they say if you lose a sense, your other ones become stronger? If you gain a sense, your other ones become less? Yeah, so they don't even hear or see this going on because they're so distracted by their other sense. Have I told you guys about the show I want to write where it's no. it's called The Fifth Sense and it's about a blind psychic? <laughs> <laughs> he can see the future and only the future. <laughs> But he can't see anything. Even he knows it's the future. Yeah. But he still can't see. Yeah. He's like, well, how do you know for sure it's the future? Kim screams to break up the circle and throws the gunman against the wall with her mind powers, instantly setting them on fire. The men collapse, and the scanners all race down the stairs to a school bus parked outside. Kim has to be shouted out of a trance in the bus because she's still in shock from having been in someone's brain while they were being murdered. No, I know what it feels like to die i'm getting a formula vibe from this movie because in that film george c scott was sent to solve a mystery and everyone he talks to gets shot the second he walks away but it turns out that he was sent on this mission to find all these people so that they could be killed along his path so now i'm worried that dr ruth sent him on this journey so that he could lead him to all these other scanners and get yeah. them all killed on purpose well that's kind of funny because michael ironside in the movie total recall is also following a guy to kill everyone who goes goes and talks to. Right, yeah. As they drive down the street in the bus, another van pulls up alongside it and just starts blasting at it with shotguns again. Yeah, they make no attempt to to slow down or speed up or Yeah, and they, they see just... the shotguns with a good 3 seconds heads up. They could have slammed on their brakes and avoided some of this massacre. Yeah. But everyone inside is killed, except for Cameron and Kim, and the bus barrels through an intersection and right through the front of a record store where it crash lands on its side. Cam and Kim escape through the back door of the record store, and another shooter wanders through the demolished store as the bus catches fire, and he's in search of the missing bodies of Cam and Kim. I, I just realized how much I hate that their names are Cam and Kim. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll keep you, saying You keep it. saying that just to annoy us. <laughs> yeah. It's also easier to type than Cameron over and over again. Come on. You use talk to text for everything. 
That's true. It's easier to say than Cameron. <laughs> That's how lazy I am. <laughs> Saving me syllables. That's... Thanks, technology. You can say veil. That's one syllable. Yeah. That's true, but I already started with Cam. In the back room, Kim signals that she has lost hope in the resistance, but Cameron insists that they can destroy Revic alone. Again, I feel like they should sense this guy approaching with a gun, but they don't seem to. Even as he levels the gun at Cameron's back right in front of Kim, they fail to acknowledge him in any way. Kim is lecturing Cameron on how powerful Revic is and that Cameron is no match when Cameron suddenly turns to the shooter and forces the man's aim away and a box in the background just explodes. Cameron makes the man dig a clue out of his jacket, a tiny vial of ephemeral with a logo on it. At first I thought, because we kept we keep talking about this army of scanners, army of scanners, and there was a moment when this guy was upstairs that the car randomly caught fire. Yeah. And we can, we've can we seen that the scanners can spontaneously combust things. It's like, well, is he a scanner? Did he start that fire as a distraction? Yeah. And he's got the ephemeral on him because he, he so he can dose when he needs it but i think the ephemeral it, he has it on him so that he can bring cameron in because he he wants to bring cameron to revic because revic specifically said he doesn't want cameron killed right we don't know that at this point but right that is what but later wants. on we'll learn that i don't like that they can like i feel like we take a step too far when we start the doing fire. the thing where people spontaneously can make things be on fire yeah it's like I, I mean like i feel like that's your that's beyond your your one point of suspension of disbelief here uh, i'll buy yeah. the being able to hear thoughts and i'll even buy going a step further and being able to like incept people and sort of yeah. uh, inject thoughts into yes. their consciousness but i i agree that the uh, the the telekinesis stuff and the and the pyrokinesis stuff seems yeah. like a step too far yeah it bothers me and i don't think it's necessary yeah because i feel like there's nothing in this movie that requires them to have to set them on fire i think everything can be accomplished with the other two aspects of their powers yeah we fade from this vial to the same logo on a billboard for biocarbon amalgamate outside a laboratory we don't bother with a scene of cameron infiltrating the place he's just inside already wearing the same uniform and hazmat suit as everybody else but based on scanner powers we have yet to learn this would not have been difficult to accomplish he sees a scientist climbing steps to a control room where results on a clipboard are being presented to revic cameron heads to the same room but by the time he gets there everyone stepped away he makes an effort to infiltrate their computer system from a terminal in the room specifically a limited access program called ripe but only gets as far as a prompt that reads ripe cannot be accessed from here primary consec terminals only so biocarbon amalgamate is affiliated with consec in some way we cut to dr ruth in a fancy parlor taking a phone call from cameron he tells ruth that he's found revic and that he wants to meet i made a breakthrough to revic i want to come in i want to bring you an informant from revic's group at this point in the film i had no idea who the informant was because I don't think we've been given any indication that Kim used to work for Revic, but we'll see later what he's talking about. We cut to a subway platform where, again, Keller is meeting with his contact, and Keller shares that Cameron is bringing in an informant, and we get the reveal that Keller's contact was Revic. Yeah, dumb. Revic insists that Cameron is lying and doesn't have an informant, and since I don't know if Kim was ever a part of Revic's group, I assume that Revic is telling the truth and that Cameron is lying for some reason. Keller worries that Cameron might have information about their contacts with each other, and Revic says, well, then you interrogate him yourself. 
Revit gives Keller strict instructions, though, to kill Ruth if he learns anything at all. And it seems like at this point, Keller didn't realize that they were a killing uh, conspiracy because he seems yeah. kind of surprised at this order. He's just like, really? If he learns anything, I, I got to kill the guy? He's like, yep. Well, and and what? it's such a vague order. Like, learns anything yeah. about what? Yeah. Like, if he starts juggling in the office, you got to shoot that guy in the face because uh, unauthorized learning. Because what does Cameron know? Yeah. What what's I mean, like uh, from from Revic's point of view, what does Cameron know at all? Yeah, I don't yeah, think he, he hasn't really anything. uncovered anything yet. I mean, yeah, from Revic's point of view, Cameron wouldn't know anything because Revic doesn't know that he knows about the right program or that he infiltrated biocarbon amalgamate. So he wouldn't right. he wouldn't know anything. We see Cam and Kim arriving at Consec via helicopter. We get a bizarre insert of just a doctor's arms holding syringes and announcing with ADR that both scanners will be given injections of ephemeral on their way in. I'm assuming this is a part of Cronenberg's reshoots, trying to fill in the blanks on their way to a final cut. Yeah, and I think that there's definitely some some of those moments that are needed. Yeah. Um, there was, yeah, the story, the story needed a few more connect the dots. But like you said, this was being written as it was being shot. Right. Because it was, that, it was a situation where I think they had four to six weeks for production and he didn't have a final script when they started shooting. So he was like changing it as he was going. Considering that, this is amazing. Yeah. I honestly think it comes together. As I think a, it's, 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 it's amazingly cohesive yeah. as something that didn't have a final script before they started. Yeah. Because there's nothing, I don't feel like there's huge plot holes or no, stuff that gets no, no, left no. out. There's just a little bit. I, I feel like there's just a little bit of an overarching motivation problem. Like yeah. what? Like who? Who is after what? And I'm not entirely sure. But aside from that, I think everything connects pretty well. Yeah. Inside Consec, Ruth expects an apology from Keller, who opts to hold his applause until this interrogation turns up any useful information. Why don't we save the party until we've unwrapped the presents? But that's not really how parties work. <laughs> Usually presents are right around the two-thirds mark, right after cake is good. <laughs> good. Presents are the indication that it's time to go home. <laughs> yes. This is where Keller drops the bomb that Trevelyan, the CEO of Consec, doesn't trust Ruth with the interrogation, so Keller's going to handle it himself. I'm not sure if this is an actual order that Trevelyan even handed down, or if Keller was just like, yeah. he won't have time to follow up on it, so I'm just going to tell him this was someone else's idea. Right. Ruth has to wait in the next room with Cameron, during the interrogation and ruth tells cameron that the injections they just got outside were placebos because he figured that keller was going to pull some bullshit like this i'm assuming cameron already knew this because he should have been able to hear everybody's thoughts on their way through the building right cameron asks ruth about the right program and when ruth seems unfamiliar he asks if ruth has heard of biocarbon amalgamate and ruth admits to having founded the company in 1942 when actor patrick McGowan was a mere 14 years old quite the prodigy he was admitted to the board of Consec when they bought the company from him, and despite being on the board and founding the company, he claims to have lost touch with the laboratory and has literally no idea what they're doing there anymore, until Cameron informs him. It manufactures ephemeral for Daryl Revick. It may even be run by Daryl Revick. That's impossible. Cameron says ephemeral is being shipped in massive tankers and that the RIPE program dictates these shipments. He can only access the program from the primary terminals in this building, or, you know, any random payphone anywhere. It follows logically that Consec is home to a trader working on behalf of Revic. I'm confused by this whole business. Because, okay, so presumably Revic doesn't 
actually work at this uh, chemical company. Right. Right? Like, it's he's working through Keller. I don't understand why the hell the head of security or whatever Keller is for Consec has anything to do with what is manufactured and what they do with the stuff that is manufactured at this yeah. subsidiary of theirs. Why are they taking orders from Keller at all? Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. But, like, it just, yeah, it just doesn't make sense. Like, I'm not really He's entirely... blackmailing the wrong person if he's threatening to kill Keller if this company that he's not affiliated with directly doesn't make a chemical that he needs. Yeah. Because Keller doesn't seem to be getting anything out of this. Right. Yeah, that that is a great point. I don't know what why Keller is doing any of this. Maybe, I mean... He's just a fan. He's a fanboying out over Revic. I mean, maybe Revic is controlling him, but then if he's controlling him, why do they have secret rendezvous? Like, can't they just meet telepathically? Yeah. What if What if after their second meeting, he just gave him a little kiss on the forehead? It's just like, oh, they're boyfriends. I didn't know. Aww, so would that cute. Would that clear it up? I don't know. I I'm just I'm just super unclear. Like, because Revic and is in the building, like doing stuff. Like, I just. I'm really maybe unsure. Revic is po- is in the building posing as the guy who is in charge of that company. I get that that actually makes a lot more sense. Like and he's it, just like delegating nobody orders knows to that people. he is a scanner or Revic, and and Keller got him in there, and he's doing yeah. stuff. Yeah, that makes way more sense because I just can't I can't picture Revic doing all of this stuff. He on just his own. body swapped or, the guy I who mean, makes Keller. Right. Yeah. Ruth tells Cameron to access the RIPE program and smoke out the traitor because it's not obvious enough to Ruth who the traitor is yet. I want you to access the RIPE program. I do not have concept computer clearance. Neither do I. But you do have a nervous system. And so does a computer. And you can scan a computer as you would another human being okay (laughs) i'm not sure that that's exactly right uh keller steps into the interrogation room and immediately starts hitting on kim what a pleasant surprise you're very attractive (laughs) before she's willing to share any information she wants to know how consec intends to protect her from revik's revenge and keller tells her that she should be more worried about him before flipping all the cameras off in the room. Not just with his middle fingers, he turns switches to turn them off. <laughs> Keller gets right up close, and he tells her that he knows that she isn't what she claims to be. And again, I was confused, because I was just starting to think that maybe she had worked for Revic, but what he's saying here is that he knows that she didn't work for Revic, and not that she isn't a scanner. Right, exactly. Because at first I was like, what do you, what do you mean she's not what she said? She's clearly a scanner. She set those two guys on fire. That was incidental. Yeah. That was going to happen to them anyway. Yeah, because it turns out that Revik doesn't have any scanners right. at his disposal. Like I, Also, I'm a little... Yeah, because earlier I think you said that Revik is seeking out scanners and killing them. I don't think that's true because that would be going against his desired goals as we learn. Well, I think his goals have to do with the next generation of scanners. That he and Cameron were supposed to lead the next generation of scanners. So he's killing current scanners just so they don't get in his way? Yeah, he's killing all the other scanners that Ruth made to take over the world with his own army. Yeah, because they could be dangerous to him. Right. Okay. I think that's the plan. We're we're spoiling things, but uh, it's necessary to spell this stuff out. Kim tries to escape the room, and Keller slaps her hard, 
He puts a gun in her face, but with her powers, she forces the gun away and shoves him to the ground before leaving. And we hear his voice all warbly like people get when they're getting scanned. I, I hate that sound effect. I, I don't I don't like that it's it's so gargly yeah. and 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 slowed down. Yeah, it's it's difficult to listen to. Keller slaps an alarm button on the wall and security start running around all over the building. Ruth tries to drag Cameron to the computer to access the ripe program, but Cameron breaks away to rescue Kim. Ruth starts talking about how important the computer is, and then he starts talking nonsense to himself about accessing the past and i really don't know what he's on about here he just keeps repeating access the past like that's a clue to something but (laughs) it doesn't pay off in any way keller tells two guards to find and kill the scanners immediately ruth sits in kim's chair in the interrogation room and talks to himself some more this time out loud ripe ripe indeed The ripe program must be stopped. Maybe, maybe access the past means that he's realizing what Revik is doing with this chemical, and that he's doing what he did in the past. Well, or so he doesn't need to know what the ripe program is. Yeah, because the because pro- the problem that I see is that access the past is knowing things that happened before he was born. Right. That's what he needs to understand. Yeah. Ruth's shouting attracts the attention of Keller as he passes the room, and he walks inside to point a gun at Ruth. Ruth continues blathering about the right program and puts his hands over his ears so he won't hear the shot that kills him, but Cameron hears it psychically clear across the building. Kim and Cam find each other in a hallway Stop it. <laughs> and run head-on into the guards with orders to shoot on sight. Cam and Kim scan them both. Stop it. Unclear what message Cameron is projecting, but Kim is forcing one of the guards to see his mother where she is standing, and she looks very disappointed in him. <laughs> I I would have really liked to have seen them like show the back and forth, but then then show Kim as the mother, but then show the guard as a child, because <laughs> otherwise it really doesn't make sense. Like, why would he be so like childlike? And like, I'm sorry, mom, I'm sorry. What if he promised his mom sometime in the past that he would never pull a gun on her again? <laughs> <laughs> and so now it's here he is doing it again, and she's just like, oh, God damn it, I knew that you were gonna do this. But both guards And how does she know what his mom looks like? Oh I guess she's Yeah, she's standing. getting never it from mind. his brain. It's all <laughs> Sorry, Mom. Mom. And then both guards collapse to the floor in tears later keller finds the men and they inform him that the scanners have escaped cameron pulls up to a gas station and runs to a payphone to access the computer through the phone lines i feel like once you found kim do this part from the building couldn't you have done this in the building yeah but somehow he knew it was connected to the phone lines and that he would be able to access it from outside the building and, and and what is his his end game like okay so he accesses the computer pro computer what what is he going to do with the information is he going to memorize well he does it? it kind of i mean he gets the information he's looking for here i mean i think he just needs to i don't even think he knows what the right program is the whole point is to log in to figure out what it even is yeah so right now all he knows is that 
it controls where these shipments are going and he wants to know more information like specifically where are the shipments going and then what i will figure out why they're going there. yeah mm-hmm. um but he opens up a connection to the payphone and we hear the same digital whine of scanning as cameron is now accessing the computer with his mind and we get these slow zoom ins on circuit boards of the like they're like lit in various colored lights as we're watching the computer react to being hacked and i know i'm assuming that these circuit boards are actually very large like in, in the sense of a model for the camera work oh okay because they get so close they get so close with the camera that uh, they, these must have been like oversized like mock-ups right? yeah that makes sense because a 35 millimeter camera is not going to fit real close up to this circuit board in the computer room at Consec, Keller is arguing with the lead programmer because the computers have locked them out. Another programmer points out that the program has been accessed, that it's been accessed through the phone line, and whoever's doing it is currently accessing the right program. Well, and, and this is like playing on people's, I don't want to say ignorance, of what a computer program is. Because right. the, right, the right program isn't an app. It's literally just a spreadsheet that says shipment a is going here yeah it's not like it's not it doesn't perform a function it's not doing calculations it's just keeping track of a list right it's program like kids soccer program not program like you know like an executable yeah exactly (laughs) but the computer readout is showing a list of names and i googled a bunch of these assuming that they were people from the credits but i can't find how this list was generated these are all very successfully random names and they must have been genuinely randomly typed up by someone on set or like they're literally like just names of people's friends or something that they put in the movie well but i mean i don't know if they were still if they were doing the sort of legal clearances that we do now but whenever we use a name in a script i have to run it up the ladder i think that's a newer thing in the legal department and it's it's a really funny thing because if there's only like one or two people then you can't do it i can't do it but if there's like it's i don't even know what the threshold is but it's like well there's 15 you know there's 15 kim obrists in the world so we can use that name but sometimes if there's zero you can't do it like when they were making meet the fockers yeah or the first one meet the parents they said you can't call this character gaylord fokker unless you can prove to us that there are fockers in the country that that's a real last name and so they had to like go through and find people with the last name fokker because they were it's like, so weird. It, so it was the opposite problem. It wasn't that that too few people identified as this. It's like if literally nobody identifies as this, then it's not even a name and you're just putting a bad word in your movie or a mispronunciation of a bad word. Yeah, that's so funny. Keller asks how it's possible that someone could access the system and the programmer tells him, We're plugged into the telephone system. Anybody who has the proper series of access codes could get in here long distance um why yeah if this system is so secret that you can literally only access it by primary terminals in the same building then there's literally no reason for this thing to be plugged into the phone lines (laughs) you know or when when a dude goes on vacation and he needs to log in from uh you know his uh ski chateau in aspen well that's when you get the (laughs) you get the prompt from from you know biocarbon amalgamate that says sorry primary terminals only yeah also how about you just if you want to stop them, just unplug the phone line. Yeah. And if you need this information in multiple places, just print out all 12 pages. Like, how long could this list possibly be? This this database doesn't need to be this huge for a list of where shipments are going. And see, in a movie like War Games, um, they, they, they kind of cover this information. Like, because it's like, yeah, how did he dial into a supercomputer inside this government facility? 
and uh uh in that movie they explain it away like it's like oh this was a, an old line to an old, old subsidiary that the phone that line never, never actually stopped yeah they never yeah they, it's just, yeah. has just been active um and and so they explain that that it was a mistake like they didn't want that to happen they didn't want it to be accessible from the outside um and and this is like it, it's like its purpose yeah well and like i wonder yeah like you said how much how much ephemeral are they really making and shipping places like it would have to be millions of trucks to warrant this entire computer system if it's literally just a list of addresses well i mean because yeah that's crazy i mean think about how much a single injection is unless they're using this is a massive amount of this stuff what if the server is deciding where to send these things like he he built some sort of an algorithm and that's what this computer is but like you oh that might make uh, sense because you have to track where it goes after you ship it because like who who like or or maybe it was like literally like oh we're gonna build up your army in these specific like strategic locations because that's where you would need the most most people to take over a society or something like that is this like the insight program what is insight from a project insight that that's the um captain america winter soldier where they have a list of all the people who could be a potential threat to hydra yeah it's basically the the seven percent solution right yeah if you're referencing the MacGyver episode, yes, I was, <laughs> which is the most one of the most haunting episodes of MacGyver. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. In Seven Percent Solution, uh, MacGyver learns that the plan was that they were going to get seven percent of politicians and police and all and forces teachers. of authority and teachers were going to be Nazis. They were going to discreetly recruit people as Nazis in all of these positions of authority, huh. and that once you get to seven percent, you can take over any society. That's that is a is that like a a, a theory that existed before that? I episode? don't know, <laughs> but that was the theory that the bad guys had there. Yeah, the only other seven percent solution is the Sherlock Holmes short story or yeah. or adaptation that is that's like his his well he's trying to wean his drug habit. Yeah, uh, we got a few more inserts of circuit boards, and Keller realizes that it must be Cameron and devises a plan to cripple Cameron and the computer at the same time. I, I really like this. I, I like because he doesn't know Keller doesn't know anything about like computers, so he doesn't right. know how he can hurt him. But he knows that if there's a way to hurt the computer, that it could also hurt him. And he's asking the computer guy, "How can we cripple him? Yeah, how, how can we just take them both out with one shot?" And and the computer guy does not get it at all. But eventually, he's like, "Well, I don't know if it's what you want." Oh, I don't know if it's what you want. But I could override the max security self-destruct. It's designed to blow all the circuits in case of anticipated possession of data by unauthorized and unfriendly forces. Isn't that exactly what's happening? Yes. You shouldn't have <laughs> yeah. to override it. It should have been activated already. Do that. Do what that is. And Keller tells him to activate the self-destruct. And then the guy's like, well, I would need clearance. And he points a gun in his face. And he's like, all right, that's the password. Uh, the engineer gets to work, and he has to cross the room to turn a key on another panel to officially send the order. Keller steps away from the machine as the self-destruct begins, but another programmer assures him that it's a very silent process and there's nothing to fear here. Really? No one's ever switched off a scanner before. We see the power lines over the gas station start sparking, and the attendant filling Cameron's car freaks out and runs off, spraying gas everywhere in the process. Back at Consec. 
the programmer who insisted there was no danger, is blasted through a wall by terminals exploding near him. No effort was made to disguise the cable yanking the stunt person through a pane of glass into the outer hallway. Every piece of computer explodes, and we cut back to the gas station, where the power line now falls into the gas puddle, and Cameron's car explodes. Cameron looks at the phone he's holding, and it's just melting in his hand, like dripping black plastic into his hand. He runs from the phone booth just as that also explodes, even though there's no fuel or anything. There's no combustible material here. It's just a metal and glass phone booth. Well, it's it's like the, the golden eye uh, effect. Right. When the smoke clears, we see that Keller has been killed by a tipped server in the computer room. We get one last shot of Cameron's car burning at the gas station, but for some reason the phone booth is in the foreground and looks inexplicably fine, like it didn't just violently explode. Cam and Kim take a taxi to a doctor's office in a residential area, presumably following information that Cameron hacked from Consec. They step into the office, and Cameron says that he'll speak with the doctor, and Kim offers to watch the door from the lobby. Kim asks a pregnant woman seated across from her in the lobby when the receptionist will be back, and she doesn't seem to know. We hear the sound of scanning, and at this point, as a first-time viewer, you're probably worrying that this woman's belly is about to explode, but it's actually the other way around, because Kim is being scanned by this woman's unborn fetus. Yeah, I was terrified that we were going to have an exploding belly here. Yeah. Cameron busts into the doctor's office, demanding to speak with him immediately, but the doctor's, like, standing there with this poor old man in his boxer shorts, and uh, he holds up a vial of ephemeral and says... I understand you've been prescribing this to patients. And the doctor's like, I got to talk to this guy for a second. We don't see the full conversation with the doctor, but when he reunites with Kim outside, she tells him how this fetus just scanned her and caused her nosebleed. And Cameron is able to put together that these doctors are receiving the shipments from biocarbon amalgamate. They're prescribing ephemeral to their pregnant patients and that the chemical is causing these children to become scanners. In the middle of his explanation, Kim is suddenly struck with a tranquilizer dart in the back by one of Revik's goons, and Cameron tries to pull the dart out, trying to keep some sedative out of her system. He tries to carry her across the yard to safety when Revik finds both of them. Of course, they came here by taxi, so they don't have a car, and this wasn't really a logical escape plan. Yeah. Revik tranks them both and then takes them to biocarbon amalgamate. Why couldn't he scan one of the people in the office to, like, help carry her? Oh, that's true, yeah. <laughs> you going to make the pregnant lady carry something, Richard? Not a, <laughs> unless she weighs Dick. over 40 pounds, it should be fine. <laughs> Cameron wakes up in Revik's office and demands to know where Kim is. Revik says she's still sleeping in the next room. Revik and Cameron talk to each other, and it seems like Cameron is conflicted with regard to his thoughts about Dr. Ruth. At first, he says that he was a great man who helped him. But then later, Revik starts talking about the power that scanners possess, and Cameron says, you sound just like him, as though it were a bad thing. Now Revik reveals some information to Cameron. He's been trying to reach Cameron this whole time to protect him, and the reason Cameron can't name his mother or father is because Dr. Ruth had this information erased from his brain because Dr. Ruth is Cameron's father and also Revik's father. He knew where you were, but it wasn't until he needed you that he reached down and hauled you up out of the slime. Who? Your father, Dr. Paul Ruth. To prove what he says, Revik presents Cameron with an old magazine advertisement for a drug called ephemeral. It was marketed to pregnant women as a sedative. 
This is a reference to a real drug called thalidomide, which was marketed as an anti-nausea medication for pregnant women in the 50s and 60s, but an unfortunate side effect of thalidomide that wasn't known at the time is that it caused birth defects, like webbed appendages, that were commonly referred to as flippers at the time. So no superhuman abilities were imbued for those children, not that I wouldn't watch a movie about flipper babies trying to take over the world. The same story was likely the inspiration for films like Minority Report, or more recently Netflix's Stranger Things, though I guess Stranger Things is also a mix with MK Ultra because it's like you're drugging people against their yeah. will by this secret government program. Yeah, but again, like the boys where right. you're yeah. You're the babies dr- have powers. You're drugging the babies so that yeah. they have powers and that scene in the first season when heads. he's like pointing the laser yes. eyes of the baby around. Spoiler alert. Good stuff. Ephemeral never made it to the mass market because of the side effects that were discovered in testing. Unfortunately, the testing was done by Dr. Ruth on his own pregnant wife to create Revic and eventually Cameron. The two of them are the oldest and most powerful scanners because they got some undiluted version of Ephemeral reserved exclusively for Dr. Ruth's offspring. So apparently they're like five years older than all the other scanners, even though they all seem to be about the same age. Actually, there's more of an age difference between Revic and Cameron than there is between Cameron and any of the other scanners. I don't know. It's hard to tell. But in addition to saying that they kept Cameron on ice in this scene, which yeah. made me think that that was happening literally, yeah. he also says like, oh, why did you connect with Keller? And then he says, Keller could see the future. And it's like, What? What, are we t- is there a psychic character here and and again it's like, i don't no, th- i don't he- think he's saying that literally i don't think right. he meant literally on ice and i don't think he meant literally see the future i think he just meant he's he's getting on the side that he thinks is gonna win yeah and i forget what the other thing but he's just so figurative in this whole lecture that there there's a third one too where i was like is this literal or figurative because you shouldn't be mixing that in such like a ridiculous sci-fi story Revic informs Cameron that with his shipments of ephemeral, that he has essentially manufactured an entire generation of scanners that they can collect and train to take over the world. You sound just like him. Like Ruth. No, not like him. Like Rack! Daryl Rack! No. Like him. It's as though he's been reincarnated in you. Revic makes one last attempt to extend an olive branch to Cameron to take over the world together, but Cameron turns him down, kind of like Luke Skywalker did in our uh, Empire Strikes Back last year. All right, we're going to do it the scan away. I'm going to suck your brain dry. Everything you are is going to become me. And uh, Michael Ironside says a very similar line in Starship Troopers when they find one of the victims of the brain bug. It's like, they sucked his brains out. He's so great in that movie. What follows is a lot of dramatic facial expressions, which would have looked weird without all of the amazing sound design and music cues. But uh, they're also combined with maybe my favorite effect after the exploding head, which is these veins that are bulging on their arms and faces, but they're pulsating to the point that they're actually squirting blood out of their arms and faces from these like huge veins. This is crazy. Cameron makes Revik's face bubble, Revic makes Cameron's heart explode out of his chest. And I was like, at this point, I was like, okay, so he's dead, right? Because he's not going to recover from that. Cameron, now on the defensive, reaches up to his own bubbling face and starts tearing big strips of his flesh ugh, away. Ugh. And then his eyes fully exploded out of his oh head. God. Cameron holds out his hands and conjures flames until his entire body is engulfed in them. Revic begins screaming and his eyes are now completely white. 
apparently these contact lenses he was supposed to wear scratched up his eyes and it caused like mm. serious issues he had to like go and get like his cornea scraped well, to oh jesus shave it, shave it back i mean i know back in you know back in the day like contact lenses weren't like soft and flexible like they right. are now like they were hard plastic and before that they were glass which yeah. is just like like the ones that they ate last year in uh, Ugh, can't stop the music gross, in the lasagna crunchy contact lenses but like those are those are like pupil sized ones but like right. in order for these to make like everything white like they're the, it's the full, full size of the eyeball cover yeah. the whole eyeball thing and i'm like how much worse is it to have a hard contact lens covering your whole eye yeah like, that's horrifying and i imagine they got scratched on the way in and that yeah. he had to just overcome the pain to do this performance with them in and then Ugh. take them out well it's epic so kudos to you but it looks incredible and that the, the the white eyes look that he has here wrapped in like streams of electricity ends up being the poster and cover box for the movie. So yeah. we cut to Kim waking up in the next room and then moving into Revik's office to find the aftermath of the fight. There is a completely charred corpse on the floor, presumably Cameron's, but then huddled in the corner under a jacket, she finds Revik. He's alive, but the scar on his forehead is gone and his eyes now look like Cameron's eyes. He tells her in Cameron's voice, it's me, Kim. Cameron. I'm here. We've won. We've won. And we dip to white before coming back facing a monitor, which then prints out the credits uh, for the rest of the film. I'm pretty sure they literally just set a camera up and pointed it at a monitor to record these credits. But that's the end of our story here. I didn't notice that the scar disappeared. Yeah, I didn't notice it on my first pass either, but when I went back to rewatch huh. it, it That's interesting. it's totally gone. Oh, I was going to say that about the, the the text going up on the computer that it, it it's not even lined up. Yeah. Like it's crooked. The, the camera's like oh, yeah. at a funny angle to the computer screen. They must have done that probably because of the reflection of the camera in the screen. Oh, so it couldn't be dead on because you would just see a lens in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. funny. Um, we we did a similar thing in high school for the credits of our movies. We would flip the the in camera effect to negative, and then we would just like scroll on a PDF with black words on white background, so that it would be white words on a black background. Um, right, right. And it worked just, <laughs> just as well. Slowly scrolling yeah. your PDF. <laughs> Actually, the the first thing we used to do for for the opening titles, we would do uh, screensaver. You know how you could type words and it would make the words like fly around. <laughs> So that would be oh, yeah, the title yeah. sequence for our film would be that oh, way. Oh my goodness, you guys. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I really like this movie. It's um, great. I hadn't seen it before and I loved it. It was it was a, a pleasant surprise to start the year out for us. And I think for sure something written on set has no business being this coherent. No, this is amazing for, for still being written. Yeah. Um, our writer-director was David Cronenberg. He followed this up by directing Videodrome, The Dead Zone, and The Fly. He also directed Naked Lunch, The Good Crash, A History of Violence, and Eastern Promises. He also played a postal supervisor in The Stupids and Dr. Wimmer in Jason X. Uh, I really like his character that he plays in uh, Nightbreed, which is a Clive Barker movie. Right. Uh, uh, it's... Because uh, he, he's pretty much the, I, I say he pretty much he is the primary antagonist of the <laughs> film. So it, he he's got quite a bit of screen time. That's cool that he actually gets a big part as a as a non actor participant in the story. 
Yeah. Uh, and his name is Philip K. Decker. Nice. Instead of Philip K. Dick. Uh, Not that it's a Philip K. Dick story. It's a Clive Barker story. Yeah. Uh, David Cronenberg also was given credit for uh, an incident involving myself and director Paul Haggis. <laughs> <laughs> because Paul Haggis and Cronenberg had a big legal dispute over the title of Crash because of Cronenberg's title called Crash. Yeah. Uh, and when I was working for a show, I, I caused an injury to Paul Haggis, uh, accident with a door. Um, accident. <laughs> well, he was, he was approaching a door, but he wasn't looking at the door. And so when Richard went to open it for him, he walked into the edge of the door, right? Yeah. He walked right into it. Um, but some, I, I, I tried, I keep trying to find the article. Some guy had written an article about it. And claimed that someone, that David Cronenberg hired some kind of hitman as a joke. <laughs> he was joking in the article, but that, that he put some kind of hit out on Paul Haggis. I was like, no, no, it was just me. Yeah, like, but it- he was literally <laughs> hospitalized, right? Oh, he wasn't hospitalized. He, he had to go to the emergency room um, and get some stitches. And and the that, that was the day before he won the Oscar. Right. crash so when he's up on the up on the stage they tried to cover it up but it's it's very clear <laughs> oh, the injury that you cr- you created as a paid assassin well they created the injury together <laughs> richard and cronenberg yeah. <laughs> that's great i i mean i knew that story i remember that story but i didn't know it had anything to do with cronenberg the first time yeah. you told it <laughs> well it doesn't technically yeah. have anything to do with cronenberg <laughs> other than someone alleged that richard is owed some monies by mr cronenberg <laughs> Uh, the music here was provided by Howard Shore. He's another regular collaborator of David Cronenberg's. He worked on Big, Quick Change, Mrs. Doubtfire, Philadelphia, Ed Wood, Seven, The Aviator, That Thing You Do, Dogma, High Fidelity, The Cell, uh, none of which are Cronenberg films. Uh, but he also did everything that Peter Jackson has done since Fellowship of the Ring because he did both Lord of the Rings trilogies and uh, King Kong between them. Cinematographer Mark Irwin, another Cronenberg collaborator, coming back for many more films, but we'll also see his work later this year in Night School. He did the 88 Blob, Robocop 2, Dumb and Dumber, and a couple other Fairly Brother titles, Kingpin, There's Something About Mary, Me, Myself, and Irene, as well as the 96 Scream, not to be confused with the 81 Scream, and Freddy Got Fingered, which is something I've been an apologist for for a long time. I have a copy on DVD signed by... Mr. Tom Green. Editor Ronald Sanders, again, mostly Cronenberg titles, but he did also cut The Gate 2, The Trespassers, Johnny Mnemonic, and Coraline, which is weird because I think that was his only animation editing credit. The makeup here was provided by Dick Smith. We just had him for Altered States, which actually kind of feels thematically linked to this movie, even if there's not direct correlations. Uh, He's got Oscars for a lot of badass makeup work over the years, but... This one probably features his most memorable uh, facial eruption. He also did Exorcist, <laughs> um, Taxi Driver, Death Becomes Her, all sorts of cool shit. Uh, Jennifer O'Neill played Kim Obrist. She's Helen St. Clair in Cloud Dancer, which we'll be covering on Patreon for its 41st anniversary this year. She's also Shasta Delaney in Rio Lobo and Dorothy in Summer of 42. The character of Kim Obrist was apparently named after producer Claude Harrow's assistant, because in the credits it says Claude Harrow assistant, Kim Obrist. So either the producer was just like, name a character after her, or Cronenberg liked the name on set and was like, that's what we're going to call this character that we're just now writing into the story. Yeah. Or 
crazy idea. He didn't have an assistant, and they, I don't know. They just made up a name in the credits Maybe. for his assistant. That's dumb. That's not what happened. <laughs> what if the assistant liked the name so much that she changed her name to Kim Obrist before they started compiling the credits? <laughs> Among Jennifer O'Neill's nine marriages, one was to Jeff Barry, who wrote all of our music for Idolmaker last year. Stephen Lack played Cameron Vale. He played Anders Wallach in Dead Ringers. He doesn't have many acting credits, but he has gone on to a successful career painting and sculpting. I was checking out some of his sculptures earlier, and they're pretty cool. They look like retro-futuristic car shapes. They're very interesting. Patrick McGowan was Dr. Paul Ruth. He plays Edward I Longshanks in Braveheart. He's the warden in Escape from Alcatraz, which is ironic because he's likely best known for playing Prisoner Number 6, the titular prisoner of The Prisoner, a role he reprised on The Simpsons. I've worked on this for 33 years. It's made out of toilet paper rolls, toothpicks, and plastic forks. And the sale is made of scabs and dynamite. It's small and it's smelly, but it should carry both of us to... That's such a great show. Yeah. I can't can't stress... Homer just kills me. (laughs) Oh, you were talking about the other show. Yeah. (laughs) I think... uh, Maybe I'm wrong, but I think all of The Prisoner is on uh, Prime or something. I have no idea. I, I mean, it didn't actually run that long. It, it, it's a, it's only one season. Yeah, but it, it's a very memorable season. Yeah, it is. But before that, he played um, another spy. Danger Man. Danger Man, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I don't know if, if, if The Prisoner is supposed to be a spiritual sequel to because cause it's about a spy trying to retire. Um, and, oh, okay. and, the consequ- and then in the last episode, he gets kidnapped uh, uh, of the prisoner. No, I was I was just pretending that he's he becomes a prisoner at the end of Danger. Oh, Man. OK. OK. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Patrick McGowan is also the Phantom's dad in The Phantom, and he's the voice of Billy Bones in Treasure Planet. Lawrence Dane played Braden Keller. He was Ralston in Nothing Personal last year, and he'll come back as Hal Wainwright, the father in Happy Birthday to Me later this year. He's also Dr. Alfred Hathaway in Darkman 2. Michael Ironside was Daryl Revick. He's also Richter in Total Recall. He's Ratchik in Starship Troopers, Jester in Top Gun, and more recently he was Miller in The Machinist, opposite Christian Bale. He currently provides the voice of Darkseid in the Harley Quinn animated series after having provided the same character's voice in the late 90s Superman the animated series. Uh, he he's super funny in the Harley Quinn series too, like the the way he plays the character. It's totally different, but it's <laughs> it's really funny. Didn't they did they bring anybody else back that was one of the original voices? I I just love the idea that they would even go to him for that. Um, I as far as original voices, I I couldn't tell you. Um, but they did get a lot of fun celebrities to do to do parts on the show. Yeah. Um, e- including. Just like people playing themselves, like Howie Mandel was playing himself, and and things like that. Uh, yeah, it was a really fun show, and I, is, as much as I want more of it, I'm kind of glad that it's, it had an ending. Oh, I didn't, kind of I, did, I didn't know that it did end. Oh, uh, it it has a place where they could end it. Oh, okay. And I would be happy if they ended. How many it seasons there. have they aired so far? Because I thought there was at least just two. A, okay, so the There's second just season the two, might be yeah. the last one. Uh, Robert A. Silverman played Benjamin Pierce. He was Dieter Perez in Jason X alongside Cronenberg. Uh, he's also in Cronenberg's films The Brood, Naked Lunch, and Existence, or Existence, as I've just learned some people pronounce it. 
Uh, he's a hydroholic in Waterworld, and we saw him last as Mr. Sykes, the psychotic red herring janitor in Prom Night. Adam Ludwig played Arno Crostic. He's Hans DeRuiter in Short Circuit 2. Murray Crutchley played Programmer 1. He's Parsons in Death Ship last year. I don't remember who Parsons would have been. There were only like nine survivors of the ship sinking at the beginning, so... So maybe, yeah. so maybe he didn't survive. <laughs> I'm guessing he's just one of the people that we see in that the quick party. The Was it a Halloween or New Year's party? I think it was New Year's. There were a lot of costumes for a New Year's party, but it could have been. Yeah. I remember there was a I Dream of Genie and, and a Planet of the Apes costume. But who knows? Louis Del Grand, or Louis Del Grand, played the first scanner. That's the guy whose head explodes, I believe. We'll see him again as Mr. Shapiro in Atlantic City and a surgeon in Happy Birthday to Me along with uh, Mr. Keller. Anthony Sherwood played Scanner in the Attic. That's one of the guys from Kim Oberst's place who ends up getting shot in the school bus. Uh, he played Seaman number two in Death Ship last year. I'm guessing he's a crewman from the first ship that gets sunk. He was also Jackson in Terror Train. That's the guy in the lizard costume who goes, <laughs> Super fantastic, man. <laughs> Which I think means that he's three for three dying in movies so far that we've covered. Uh, this movie's great. I love the visual effects. Yeah. I love the story. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people shit on the Cameron Vale performance because it's so monotone, but I think it works perfectly for the character, especially because he's kind of like a, a blank slate at the beginning of the film. Yeah, and I think it, it for me, it makes sense too. Like I, I was not bothered by it at all. Like it, I think it stands out, but it right. doesn't bother me. Like because I think that we don't really understand his history but as far as i'm concerned he's a social outcast so like right. that doesn't necessarily mean that he has the best social skills in the world here so i like his performance yeah um and obviously ironside is amazing especially in that the retro footage when we're i, I i'm trying to think i guess they aged him up because he looks younger when they're doing the interrogation scene with him or maybe it's just because it's black and white and higher contrast or something but also just like how he looks when he screams yeah, like the the way he can shape his his mouth oh when he's God, just in yes. a full roar, uh, he he's he's an amazing. He's he's so great, and I yeah. think that he did a great job in this film in particular. And McGowan obviously is wonderful too. Yeah. But just those faces that he makes, I just can't I can't get over the agony that you see and feel as he's trying to control people, and then you know the 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 final scene is just. The, the face shapes are the I I think one of the best parts of this movie. And honestly, um, even though he's in he's not in the film very long, obviously, uh Louis Del Grand, the guy whose head explodes, like he's really selling that like someone's infiltrating his skull and that he's in intense pain. Yeah. yeah. And uh I also really like how people react to being scanned how there's like a such a wide variety of responses to it like physically. Because I feel like that's how it would work. Like different people would react to it differently because people react to pain differently. But uh, all of them seem really unique and weird. Uh -huh. um, and I just feel like uh, it must have been really, that must have been the hardest part of the directing for Cronenberg to be like, no, 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 what you're doing doesn't make sense. Do it like this. Um, hold your arms up to your face and then wave them over your head as you're getting scanned. Um, there's just so many different things that people are doing, but it all works really well. It never comes yeah. across as, like, weird or out of character. Well, it's a thumbs up for me. Yeah. Thumbs up for me, for sure. Oh, yeah. Way up. All right. Letterboxd, what do we think of, Jess? 
oh, it's easily top of the list. Yeah. No question about it. Well, we've had a lot of trash so far. Yeah. Uh, but I, same here. Top of the list. Number yeah. one. Patrick? Um, <laughs> let me look at these again. Underground Aces. Hmm. Yeah. You know what? I'll put this on top two. Why not? <laughs> I actually might be there for a while. I think it's going to yeah. stick around a bit. I think that's everything for this one. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. You can find a button at the top of our .com and join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future. Also, search for Vintage Video Podcast on YouTube and subscribe to our new channel. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through patreon.com slash vintage video podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Fear No Evil, which IMDb describes like so. High school student turns out to be personification of Lucifer. Two archangels in human form as women take him on. We leave you now with a trailer for Fear No Evil. Alexandria High School, class of 81. All the students are going to hell, except for Andrew. He sent them there. Fear no evil. It'll scare the devil out of you.